And welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. Today we're going to have a brand new book guest on. Whether they're an author, an editor, a producer, you'll never quite know. So you're in for one hell of a ride. But today I just have to uh, do the adverts and then I'll get us straight into that most important conversation. And as as we do every week, um, I'm going to read The Shadow which is part of the Time Guardian series, and this is book four from Marianne Curley. The battle is over, the war is won. The prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan, struggling to cope with tragic loss. At odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping in shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Athena's death, Desalswear's revenge to fullify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation? Who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battles through the past and into an impossible future, darkness looks round every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that The Price of Freedom by Rosemary Aiken, sorry, Rosemary Rowan, um, is being donated to the Ukraine cri- refugee crisis. And here's the blurb for her book. It's uh, one of her Roman British crime series, which was written under her maiden name. All editions can be found online where all books are sold, even her agents donating her commission. Sorry, I don't have the blurb for that, but uh, that's that's what she's doing. And now, without further ado, let's get you to the guests. And welcome back to the Book and Life podcast, guys. Today, we've got uh, absolutely amazing new-ish author that's coming in. New because, like, you guys haven't seen her before, and also new because I've just learned about her work, and I think what she's doing is absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to get my hands on it and read it. So without further ado, please, everybody, welcome Sarah Hillary. Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. So tell us a little bit about your book, Blackthorn, because it looks incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's my second standalone book. It's a thriller set on the cliffs um, in Cornwall, right at the edge of um, land where it, it tumbles down into the sea. And it's a thriller about um, a a paradise building project, um, which over the course of six weeks, one summer turns into a nightmare for the families that live there. Um, and the survivors, um, one family in particular, one young woman in one family in particular, and yes, Gail, decides that she has to find out the truth about what happened. Um, there have been six deaths, um, but hidden amongst the deaths um, is a suspected murder. Um, and so Agnes sets herself the task of trying to find out the truth. Um, and, and in doing so, she um, sets in motion um, a, a sequence of events that um, it ultimately lead to a, to a bigger nightmare. 
um, uh, particularly for her and her family. Wow. That's just exciting because this the idea of, well, there's been six. So, like, yeah, that's, like, really, really interesting. So how did you come up with this idea? What was your aha moment of, I got to write this story? Um, it's a slightly strange starting place um, in actual fact. It didn't start um, as an idea about writing a book about um, a murder hidden amongst a group of um, deaths, for example, which you might think it might. It didn't start one day as I stood at a clifftop in Cornwall looking down at the sea, or even with the idea of a paradise building project, um, which does is a, is a theme I've I've talked I've written about before. It actually began in a very odd place um, with um, a fascination that I've had for a long time with um, the people who returned to the area around Chernobyl after oh, the yeah. um the nuclear accident there um and the the idea of the lure of home and the extent to which people will return to the familiar to what they know even when they are absolutely certain that the consequences of doing so might be deadly um or toxic yeah. or both um and that that to me was the germ of the idea that's the thought that wouldn't leave me alone all writers will will know this feeling there's there's a, yep. a voice sometimes it's a character whispering at you madly sometimes it's an idea that you think of oh, that's not enough in that to make a story you know that's yeah. just an idea um but in fact if it stays in your head long enough and starts to take root there um then it can in time um develop into a story and that's how um blackthorn came about out. That's incredible because I know for me, like when I was doing my series, uh, Marie's World, it was nuts. And, um, you know, it was like I had just sort of the dance scene. I had, because I, I literally retired from there. But all the characters that me and my friends we had created just would not leave me alone. Mm. It was like they were persistent. And I remember saying to my husband, I'm like, I'm not a dancer anymore. So why do I keep thinking of all these stories that, you know, because for how we set it up, Mar you know, Marie and Layla, which was the two centric characters for our dance stuff, was the catalyst for everybody else to web out around them. And so when we kind of lost a lot of our members, it seemed like the stories that I was creating for that died. But no, no, they just found another way to annoy me. So Yes, ideas have a way of doing that. And and thank, thankfully, when we're writers, we can do something about that. Yeah. It doesn't just end up being an annoying tick in the back of your head. You can actually create something new from it. And thank goodness we can. I mean, I was lucky because I met my co-author and I was like, I don't know. Well, I knew wrestling. I'd grown up wrestling, uh, but I didn't know how to write it and I didn't understand any of that. And I'd been training. Uh, I actually started out training as a wrestling writer under a guy called Vince Russo. And my co-author was like, we need to write this series. These two girls are crazy. So yeah, like understanding just how one idea can like spiderweb out, especially into other ideas and into other novels can be a lot of fun. And I think you're onto something there as well, because you mentioned that you'd written sort of from a paradise standpoint before so i think maybe that's your thread that's gonna like keep you going for a little bit you might have other ideas along the same lines 
Absolutely. I think writers definitely do tend to return to um, certain themes again and again. Sometimes yeah, we, we do. don't even know we're doing it and it takes a reader to point out to us that that's what we were doing. That's happened to me. Um, where And then, then when they've done that, you think, well, of course, that's what I was doing. But, <laughs> but sometimes it is utterly subconscious and you, you yep. don't know. And it is only somebody with the correct distance that can um, put pull those threads together and actually see a pattern um, um, for you. And it's a big surprise and quite a strange feeling when it happens. Yeah. One of the, the things that I've learned, particularly from threads and readers, is my readers say, Crystal, you always seem to surround a time jump, either in a bar or somebody having dinner. And I'm like, I actually sat and thought about it the other night because I was talking to somebody I was working with and they were like, oh, you just did that by coincidence. And I'm like, no, that's actually something novelists do. Like we all map certain time jump spots so that we are, we've got a, like a return point. So you're almost hitting like the reset button. Okay, this is five years later and they're having dinner or five years later and they're at a bar because that's what those characters do. So I thought it was quite amusing when you said that because I'd never really thought on the small details that I I had made a point in making until they were like, oh, you really, you, you tend to have that one focal point where they all seem to kind of regather. Yes. Yeah. So what made you kind of enter into crime writing? What was your, your fascination? Um, well, I think I'd always read crime ever since I was little, really. Um, and um, I had convinced myself when I first started writing my own stories um, that I couldn't do a crime novel because of the plotting required because yeah. so um, the, the best crime novels the, the plotting in it can look almost impossible to to work out how it's been done and so you you in your mind you can build it into a big uh, a bigger deal than perhaps it is um, yeah. and so I put off writing a crime novel for a long time I wrote short stories I'd written other kinds of um, fiction but um, and then a friend of mine said well what is um, plot anyway it's just a series of coat hangers that you you hang your story on um, and yeah. that sort of took all the fear out of it for me because it made it so so mundane sounding. Um, I still don't plot. Um, uh, but then once I discovered that lots of writers don't plot, like Ian Rankin, um, then it became a lot easier to deal with the fact that I don't plot. I felt less like I was breaking the rules and yeah. more like I was. I'd, it was just the way that I was meant to write. Um, and I think um, ultimately, obviously, um, character is plot, plot is character. So characters yeah. are always what fascinate me. Um, and I'm fascinated by the darkness in characters. I always have been. And so in in many ways, another friend, a different friend had said to me, well, you're, you you write darkness really well. You, you love, obviously you love writing darkness. And that means that you should be a crime writer. Um, right. So um, there was that, there was that as well. Um, but I think my favorite books are crime novels. Um, I'm, my favorite writers are crime writers. So, um, it, it was a, it was a happy moment when I decided yeah. to throw my lot in with them. And also the, the kindest and most welcoming of, of, uh, sort of fiction genres. I think I've, I've only ever yeah. made friends, been supported, been encouraged and cheered on by, you know, all kinds of crime writers from the ones who, the world famous ones at the top of their game to the newcomers. Um, yeah. It is genuinely a very inclusive uh, community. And I'm really pleased and proud to be part of it. I wonder if that's because we, you know, when you're writing crime, you're thinking about how to do each other in. <laughs> so there's almost that element of, 
I'm not going to get on that person's bad side just in case. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting twist on the normal The normal way it gets explained, certainly by crime writers, is that we get all our demons out on the page. And then yeah. in real life, we're lovely people. Um, and it's the romance novelist that you need to look out for. That's the joke. Obviously, I know many yeah. romance novelists and they are lovely people, to be clear. Um, but the joke is that, you know, obviously, if you have to write Happy Ever After every day, it, um, then you probably they just get tiresome. I could, I could safely say that i have been in romance for years and there's i've gotten to that point where i don't read it now Mm. because i can see where it's going way before anybody else and it's the same with crime like a lot of crime novels i can't read to the end because i figured it out by like a quarter of the way in Mm. and then i can just flip to the end and be like yep Uh, yep that's exactly what i thought would happen and i think it's weird and when you're talking about plotting, it was weird. We had a we had a romance award um, presenter on a couple of weeks ago called JJ Rancher, and he swears by the the software Plotter because he says it's so much easier to track all your character stuff, and you can like pull it up and you can check to make sure you know the name of the dog or you know <laughs> you know if they wear red shoes or whatever it, little details that you need to know. I don't use Plotter. I'm I'm a bit like you. I just kind of, I go for it. And if it works, great. If something's not working, then I go in and I break down the, you know, the, the chapters and sort of figure out, okay, where did I go wrong here? Um, but I find that I have to be careful that I don't overplot. And I think that's something, particularly because I'm doing contemporary fiction now, I'm having to be more aware of not overplotting. And I kind of use the great thing about Marie's world is Marie has her love triangles and then Layla has hers. So that's the only time that I actually physically say, okay, I actually have to sit and look at my notes and look at everything because if I get the wrong two in bed, I'm going to be in trouble because <laughs> somebody's yeah. going to notice it. Um, I, always I never think, forget like, the name of the dog. <laughs> no, exactly. Never forget the name of the dog. Yeah. And I used to do, but have you ever done it with the big whiteboard where you kind oh, of, yeah. you have once. your clues? You've done mm-hmm. that once? I've done it once, but I, I can't, that's, I, I was right back at the beginning when I was first writing a crime novel and yeah. it, all the books, had, you know, the books I'd been reading advised that was the way to do it. So I thought, well, I better do it the right way. Um, but yeah. by the time I had plotted it all out, it wasn't a whiteboard. In fact, it was an A3 um, sketch pad. But by yeah. the time I plotted it all out, I was so, I thought, I felt like I knew the story. There was nothing for me to discover. There was no yeah. excitement, no feeling of what are they going to do next? What surprise, yeah. in what way are these people going to surprise me? Um, and I think that's the great thing about crime fiction as well, is that even if you are writing it or reading it for the puzzle of the who done it, if you like, yeah. uh, which may well, very well be guessable and probably will be by most readers of crime fiction because they are such voracious readers. It's very, very hard yeah. to pull the ball over the eyes of a, of a crime reader. Um, but the why done it, which was for me always the most fascinating part of a, of a, 
um, novel anyway, um, is it has so many different variants on it. So if, yeah. you, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever attended a murder mystery dinner. Um, I've done several in my in my time, and I've the done surprises one. normally go to people that are that you have to guess two things. You have to guess who done it, and you have yep. to have to guess the motive. You have to guess the why done it, and you'd be surprised the number of people who can guess a who done it, but they have. Get it completely no idea yeah. And for me, that's the interest in a crime novel is the psychology. It's the, mm-hmm. the things that we do as human beings in extremists. It's the people who, when the worst possible thing happens, um, find themselves um, either becoming unexpected heroes when they didn't think they were capable of that or find themselves becoming monsters when they thought yeah. they were good people. Um, and... I think there's en- almost endless permutations of that, and that is such a rich and fertile ground. I think that's why people keep returning to to crime, either as writers or or as readers. I hope so, anyway. I, I think you're right, because a lot of the time, even if I have figured out the book and I do continue to read on, it is purely because I haven't figured out the motive. But as soon as I figure out the motive and I figure out who's done it, that's when I kind of get really... I say, okay, I know how that ends. <laughs> and I set it aside. But I, yeah, I mean, one of the, the, I never really did read crime until later on in my life. Um, because my, my grandmother always convinced me that it would give me nightmares. But mind you, she thought Catherine Cookson would give me nightmares. So <laughs> as, as, as she, you know, you will. So I picked up, um, I got sent a copy of Fiona Cummings, The Bone Collector when that first came out and it hadn't been published. I was just starting to do blogs. I was starting to promote and I was like, ah, crap. I like crime. And (laughs) that was me. Like I started reading all the different kinds of crime that I could get into. And I liked the psychology because one of the things that I'd grown up with in historical is the, the way those characters are built and the fact that these, you know, particularly Catherine Cookson, if you go back to her, she was having very serious conversations really early in her career. But it was her characters that were actually pushing the envelope because she was thinking about them in a 3D, 3D positive way. And that was like, okay, I really like this. I'm, I'm not, And that's why I do what I do with my characters and trying to make it as rounded and as much of an experience as humanly possible and that's what i love about yours because as soon as i read the press release i'm like these are 3d characters there's nothing flat about this so i was excited when i got offered the book because i'm like yeah i'm actually looking forward to reviewing this one whereas i might not throw it across like i've done for a couple others recently fingers crossed (laughs) yeah i mean but you do you get some books that you they're just particularly romance sometimes can be so predictable that you just get to that point of reading you're like oh here comes the twist here comes the big breakup you know here comes the big sad moment that you kind of just you get depressed and you're like oh especially if you've written it for years because you just you can tell and that that yeah, so that's why I'm struggling with romance at the moment. Um, so I'm excited to get my hands on some crime and have some, I call it my, my holiday time. <laughs> where Excellent. I can read and relax, you know. Oh, um, relax with a good crime novel. Yes, I think, yeah, I think that's the one to which, think of it. 
that has to sound weird, right? To say relax. No, no, it's, that sounds absolutely right. It's interesting you said your grandmother warned you off books that would scare you because my mother used to give me books with the for the purpose of scaring me. Oh, even wow. though she's she's pretty scared of she she would tell me give me books that she said had frightened her so badly she couldn't keep them in the house any longer. Um, yes, yes, she you know like 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 me i think she liked to be scared i think there is a certain yeah. element in in all of us where we have that um sort of vicarious experiencing of of darkness and um from the from the security of our own sofa or our, our own armchair exactly it's a way yeah we can, we can dip our toes in the darkness um but and think about it without actually being um you know genuinely in in the in the grip of it Although a great crime novel can make your pulse race. And I mean, yeah, Fiona's book is brilliant. The Collector is fantastic. So what a great way to start. I'm not surprised you got hooked after you read that. It's a fantastic I, I also read it in the worst possible setting because I read it in hospital. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, not good. And of course, if you know anything about the story, you'll get why. <laughs> that was yes, maybe that is... not a good idea at the time. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, well, at least it didn't put you off. No, it did put me off, but it did make me very um, aware of who was around me for a while. Um, yes, it'll it, do it, that. It's also funny because where, where I grew up, there's kind of the olden day viewpoint from particularly when I was growing up was let's scare the, the female um, members of the Shetland community to stay on the island. There was a sense of, oh, if you go to Glasgow, you'll get stabbed. If you go to Edinburgh, you'll get beaten to death. If you go down to London, you'll get shot. You know, there was like almost these terrifying stories that they would just constantly hit you with. And I kind of rebelled very young and went, oh, I'm going to, I'm just going to go south, you know, because... Shetland is such a small place. I I honestly mm. felt suffocated. But Shetland has some incredible crime writers up there. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I was swear say, it's because it's like there's long winters and they want to do each other in. Um, mm. But yeah, yes, whoever came up with those ideas to put you off didn't really understand human psychology, did they? Especially no, for they young really people. Didn't. They should no. have tried a bit of reverse psychology, telling yeah. you that you know that these places were were uncool or something and then you might have been more likely it's certainly not by telling you that they sounded so dangerous um yeah and, anyway uh, and as you pointed out crime came to shetland you didn't have to go looking for it oh no, i didn't and it was weird because we were living there three years ago with my mom and dad and we'd just been up and somebody actually got murdered and it was like the first murder in shetland in almost like 50 years or something like 20 30 years yeah. and the chaos on the island was insane because the sh none of the police had to do anything. They were literally all in their little station and there was a queue of Shetland witnesses mm. because the, the people that had committed it were not smart in any shape or mm. form. And there was a queue round the corner of people going and handing these people in because they were like, well, we saw it. And they were like, yeah. well, why didn't you do anything? And they were like, well, it was a bit late by the time we saw it. <laughs> I was just like, it was probably the quickest arrest ever. Like, yes, it would make for a very boring crime novel, wouldn't it? it was, Unless there yeah. was a superb twist that all the people that had witnessed it were actually the killers. 
and they were all, they were just trying to get rid of the, the the people that they'd named. That's how a crime novel would do it, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly. Like it's, it's just too easy. It it tickled my sense of humor because they they killed this girl, and I don't feel you know I feel I feel very sorry for her family that you know this happened to her, but they they had no way of getting off the island because you either fly in or you get a fourteen hour ferry, and everybody said the same thing. Where were they going to go? Because everybody mm. knew they'd done it. So where where was this grand escape plan that didn't come to anything? No, um, because I guess most murders, it just wasn't wasn't planned, was it? No, I, I don't think it was it planned. Was and, to happen. Yeah, you know, if it had been me, I would have. I would have made sure that I was on the first fishing boat out of there, whether I'd hotwired it or whatever, I would have been gone. And mm. I would have been in an international waters before the uh, queue could have formed at the police station. But it was just, it tickled me because they've just had Shetland Noir up there. And yes. some of the best uh, authors in the world are up there. And uh, my learning support teacher was my mentor in high school and she actually got me writing again and uh, she she was joking with me and she said it's weird she said because so you've left and you went into romance writing you came back to Shetland and you wrote half a crime novel in two months and I went yes. yeah I needed therapy <laughs> <laughs> you know it's my therapist had suggested <laughs> take the people that's bothering you and put them in a crime novel because you're smart oh, enough to yeah, to mm. kill them and get away yeah. with it. So, yeah. Ah. But I, I just, I thought it was hilarious. And when I came to Glasgow, Glasgow is one of the nicest places I've ever lived. They have the yes. nicest people. They go out of their way for each other. Um, yes, it's a lovely city. It is. It's an absolutely lovely city. Does it have its crime? Yes. Is there murders? Yes. But to me, it's 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 such a different place than what it's portrayed as so mm. i yeah and then i actually ended up marrying a man from glasgow <laughs> so really disappointed my grandmother but oh well. oh well i'm sure she got over it i hope she did anyway yeah she did a few years later when we went back up she took one look at ian and she was like she thought she was looking at her husband and she was madly wow. in love with him again so yeah because she she was pretty far into her dementia at that point so um, oh, bless her. but yeah it was it was so funny when when he walked in and she went oh, look there's the love of my life and Ian just sort of looking around and just say hey <laughs> <laughs> just that kind of six foot three guy just sort of <laughs> oh. and she bless her bless her she flirted yes. with him the entire time it was so cute um good good he was, he was beetroot because he didn't know what to say no, of course not. He wouldn't, would he? Still, it could have been worse. She could have gone, oh, I knew this would happen if you went to Glasgow um, and uh, thrown him out of the room. So I guess it was a nicer greeting than he might have been anticipating. It was, yeah. And it, I mean, it was kind of like the running gag in my family. Oh, Chris was going to end up with somebody in wrestling. And it was kind of like, I was always lectured at length about how I needed the appropriate husband, a yeah. husband with money and all this sort of weird and wonderful things. And I always wanted the normal people in my life. Like I wasn't fascinated by, I don't want to say that, that I I love performers, but I never wanted to be with a performer. 
So I kind of had that sense of grounding from the very beginning. Um, so yeah, and I, I think that plays into writing as well, because what we take from our own lives, we put into our work. Anything Certainly. that we see, anything we experience, it all goes in. And particularly for me, that, that was something I wanted to present when I started getting into my own journey. So if I'd had a performer partner, it would have driven me mad because I think we would have been trying to outdo each other all the time. So now I have a quiet man who uh, who unfortunately shares the same name as the writer of James Bond. Oh, well, we can't all be perfect. No, no. <laughs> it's, it's funny, though, when I introduce him to people and I go, yeah, his name's Ian Fleming, yes. and then we have the five-minute conversation, you know. <laughs> it's a nice icebreaker. It's a good icebreaker, yeah, exactly. Um, and he he does really well when he goes to signings and stuff. People generally flock to him, so it's very helpful. Yes, yes good, good, good. Earning his keep. Yes. So tell us about what what you've been reading. Is there anything that's really kind of standing out to you at the moment? Um, so I um, I love reading, and I think all writers should be reading all the time. In fact, it's a I get quite um, jealous of the way writing eats into my reading time. Sometimes I always Same. have the most yep. eatering and to be read pile in the world, uh, and I get sent quite a lot of proofs, and it's always really gratifying to do that. Plus, then there's the pleasure of rereading, um, yeah. which I had sacrificed at one point not not that long ago in the interests of. Um, concentrating on reading new things, um, particularly proofs that I was being sent. Um, but actually, I love um, I love rereading. I'm on a big Dick Francis binge reread at the oh, moment. Okay. The books I first read when I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, and um, so I'm I've been obsessed with doing a lot of rereading in that respect. But that's um, but in terms of what I have read um, recently that um, is new and that your listeners could be picking off the shelves, plucking off the shelves. Well, you mentioned Fiona Cummings earlier. Yes. Um, and so her new one, All of Us Are Broken. Um, I'm is excited coming to out. see that one. Yeah. Yes, that's fantastic. So I read that one a while ago and it's another fantastic book in her um, uh, Soul Anguish series, which um, links to back right the way back to the collector, in fact. Um, so that's quite exciting in that in that one sense as well. Um, I made that I'm, connection been... actually to her on the podcast. I said, yeah. wait, isn't that boy the one from the bone collector? She went, yeah. And she was so excited that I yeah. clicked in my head. And I hadn't even gone right yes. back to read the bone collector. It was just there. So I'm excited because yeah, I want to see what he, uh, where he goes. Yes, almost. absolutely. Well, I think he's a really, really amazing, uh, such a different detective character. Yeah. Um, and I love, um, I, I love his, uh, sort of, um, partner in crime, if you like, um, Blue, the, yeah. um, the, the narcoleptic forensic pathologist. I think it's just fantastic invention. Fiona's got such a fertile mind. It's amazing. Um, I've just been reading uh, Megan Abbott's new book, Beware the Woman, okay. uh, which is amazing. Uh, it's like a sort of, um, uh, almost, it's got a flavor of, um, Rebecca, which people often refer to there being a flavor of Rebecca in a lot of things. I said that, yeah. um, about my, my previous standalone fragile and, and, and also possibly about Blackthorn. Um, but actually hers is more to the Mrs. Danvers angle of Rebecca, who's always been one of my favorite characters in fiction, Mrs. Danvers, I think. Um, so it's nice to see that happening there. Um, and I have been, uh, and then today I was got very, very excited because I've just received Mick Heron's new book, The oh, Secret wow. Hours, 
yeah. uh, which isn't out until September. But um, yeah. it's not part of his Slow Horses series, actually. It's a standalone, but it's oh, wow. um, absolutely got me in its in its thrall already. I'm not even all the way through the first chapter, and it's just fantastic. So that's going to be the rest of my weekend wrapped up as I <laughs> as I stick with that. So I have um, to ask, but- have you tried M.W. Craven yet? Because we had him on the show, and he's... He's such a funny Mike guy. Craven? MJ Craven? Mike Craven? Yeah, Mike Craven, yeah. Yeah. He goes yeah. through no, the Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. He's he's um he's um just like Fiona. He's shortlisted for the um Fixton's crime novel of the year. Oh wow! Um, so it's uh, it's very exciting to see um to see so many great writers and and friends who are on that list. Um, it's a fan that we're really all of us are really looking forward to Harrogate in a couple of weeks' time. It's come around so quickly. It does. Um, like all the festivals, like you almost think, oh, that's like that's months away, and then you look at your calendar and you're like, oh wait, crap, it's like three weeks away. <laughs> like the time yeah, just sort of goes so fast, you know. Like yeah. I, I'm yeah. I'm the same. Like I had, I just relaunched um, Summer of Him, which was my very first dance into erotica and sort of more adult kind of work, and then I was like. My 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 publisher was like, "Well, we're going to start pre-ordering your new one at the end of the month," and I'm like, "Wait, I just got used to the fact this one's relaunching. Like, just give me a chance mm. here." But I I signed the the contract for doing one book a month for the next three years, so I'm going to have to get wow, again. Wow. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to have to get used to <laughs> one book a month. Yeah, for three years. Yeah. All right. Okay. How are you yeah. how are you writing a book in a month? Oh, I have a stockpile, so I'm not actually writing oh, wait, one a month. You're publishing a book a month. You're, publishing, yeah, you're not actually writing from scratch a book a month. No, 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 that not would be from scratch. I had a stockpile before I agreed because I kind of figured ahead of time. I'm like, if she offers me this, I, I need to find a way to survive the writing aspect of it. Because um, usually editing takes me a month because I'm dyslexic. So I have to really hmm. sort of take it 20 pages have a break 20 pages have a break yeah and so yeah the the agreeing to releasing one book a month for the next three years just sort of felt like oh that's a lot yeah that is that is a lot isn't it that's quite a lot to i suppose if you're constantly in my book's just come out mode maybe yeah. it'll make it a bit easier because otherwise those of us who are sort of doing it once a year it does become a very very big tormenting thing this whole lead up to publication and yeah. um, publication itself and it's exciting but it's also nerve-wracking and um, I, I was, I was uh, also trying to explain to her like I signed that contract in my third year of university right <laughs> of course I did you know and I've got one year of uni left and I'm also doing this podcast full-time I'm a script writer so I'm working with um different people for that and I'm just like my life is shrunk from like this nice, pleasant, calm, quiet life that I used to have to now the schedule where I'm terrified to open my diary to see what's coming next. <laughs> but do you well, find that too? Do you find that you go from having that nice, quiet time to then all of a sudden everything just pancakes on top of you? Um, it can feel a bit like that, I think, particularly around publication time. Yeah. And it's always slightly strange because normally, um, for me, as a new book comes out, I've just about submitted the next book. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've just 
finished in inverted commas, you know, pre-edits, um, mm-hmm. a new book. And so that's the book that's most uppermost in my mind. Um, and then you're signing up to do lots of events like, like podcasts and, um, all of these kinds of things to talk about the book that hasn't actually come out yet, but feels to you as if it was done a long time ago because. Yeah. You know, you finished editing it a long time ago. Um, and so it's it can feel a little bit mad when you're trying to hold all these stories and characters in your head and make sure you don't get them confused and you're talking about the right one when you're talking um, to people. Um, and, you know, it's all, it's great. It's what you sign up for when you, when you become a writer. Um, but I think ultimately we become writers because we are introverts. I think most yes. writers are by instinct introverts um, and that's why we spend our time making up characters and controlling the stories and because that's you know where our comfort is um, but when it comes time to publicize the work that we've done obviously then you need to become a bit of an extrovert yes. um, or need to, you need to mask as an extrovert quite um, uh, quite convincingly um, and that that's where I that's the bit I find most exhausting um, I do because, too actually yeah yeah yeah, you absolutely have to do it. And I, I, I'm not saying, oh, poor me, I have to go and talk to people and meet people. Absolutely not. But I do think it's not a natural state for a writer no. because there's a reason we became writers. And it's because we tend to like to be to one side of the world. We're observers. Yeah, we, we I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Inventors and uh, yes, and, and dreamers maybe and not doers, um, all those cliches. But, yes. Um, but yes, I think that's that's the bit that I find most um, exhausting. Whereas the most enervating bit, well, the most, no, the most energizing bit for me would be right at the very beginning of a new idea. Yeah. Um, when everything is sparking yeah. and the whole world appears to be full of giving you little clues and tips and aligning with your ideas, all these freaky coincidences, you know, where suddenly the news has got a story, obscure story that chimes yep. with what you're writing. And, um, but, um, but this is the scary end of the business, which is when, as the book is going out into the world and you wonder if, readers are going to connect to the characters in the yeah. way that you hoped that they would when you invented them, you know, and, and hoping that um, reviewers will be kind and, or not kind, just, just get it, you know? Um, yeah, reviewers are never really moved. kind though, let's be honest. <laughs> no, they don't need to be kind, but they do need to be moved in some way. I think the yeah. worst thing a, a writer can hear is, yeah, it was boring, you know? Yes, I've had that. The book you wrote was boring. That's I, much I worse prefer... than somebody got I prefer it was boring to I could not finish it. Yes, yeah, that's that's a difficult one, isn't it? I yeah. do think it's um um I drive yeah, that's that quite one. a hard yeah. one to hear. Yeah. I actually came up with this this self promise to myself. I'm like, I'm not going to read any more reviews because it can feel like you just lose all your confidence and you've got talent. Yes. You must have talent if you're published. But you almost kind of have that moment of self-doubt in in regards to, oh, well, this particular person didn't get it, so what did I do wrong? And you have that kind of panic mode. Um, when, I, when it comes to me doing events, I'm super lucky that I did drama and I did dancing as a young person because it means I can almost not fake it, but I almost create like a persona character within myself. And then no matter what event, if I'm doing a romance event, I have a certain look and I have a certain way of talking at that event that's completely different to how I might do an adult romance interaction. So yeah. I learned to be able to compartmentalize. And I think that's something I've, I've noticed with all the crime writers we've had on the show is everyone's really good at compartmentalizing. 
I wonder if yes. that's like, yeah. there's got to be something a therapist can say about our great ability to compartmentalize ourselves, our characters, and our stories. Like, there's got to be something so. in our brains that's slightly different. I think I think you're probably right. I think also it's it's just because when you're in the business of writing, when you're right in the in the heat of it, and you're inventing a story and, and characters talking to you in your head, it's a, you're a bit nuts, aren't you? That's when yeah. the therapist is probably going to earn some good money from you, um, and um, and and you do lose some of your social skills. I remember once towards I, I spent about two or three weeks just writing to a deadline yeah. towards the end of um, one of my books a few years ago, and then I had to meet up with my brother who I hadn't seen for a while at the weekend yeah. and I couldn't frame a sentence properly I just found that I got lost the ability to to to, com- to converse yeah um, because everything I've been doing had been internalized um so it is we do if we're going to survive and navigate social situations whilst being writers we do have to be able to compartmentalize um because otherwise we're just muttering to ourselves and um yeah. It's so funny you say that because when I've, I've been working with somebody lately and the amount of times they'll say to me, you do know that even though I'm like super intelligent, I don't know what you're thinking. Like, I know hmm. where you're going. I know what you're trying to do, but I'm not in your head. So, so can you please be concise with me and uh make sense and i have to stop yes. and i have to go because every time particularly when you're doing a novel adaption to film there's almost that way where you're trying to keep the characters as pure to what the book was but then you're also trying to fight the directors and the producers and the other writers to kind of make them almost line up and i get constantly I get accused of writing highbrow, which I never knew that I did until I actually started doing the script writing. Pro- and I'm like, wait, I'm a highbrow writer? When did that happen? Or or I get told, Crystal, coherent sentences, please. Because <laughs> in my head, I'm still in that film with the character. But they're kind of staring at me like, what was she thinking? What's she doing? What's she supposed to be saying right now? You know? So I'm... I'm yes. adapting to those situations. It's easier for me when I'm with the readers because I can like touch on something and a reader will go, yeah, I remember that or whatever it is. Yes. Um, but my last, one of my favorite tours, I had Ian drive me. He actually ended up knowing the story better than I did. Because <laughs> I was, because of dyslexia, you have to read aloud, you know, and that can be extremely difficult if you're dyslexic to read aloud. Um, so I would, practice these pieces from the book and I ended up reading the book from the very beginning to the very end to him and Mm. I swear he was like I think he was going to beat me with that book honestly I really do because when there was like moments where I couldn't answer questions because I couldn't figure out what character they were talking about I would just look at him and he would mouth the name to me and then it would come back and I could almost like piece it together so Oh, amazing! What a, yeah. that's that. He's he's definitely a keeper, isn't he? Yeah. So he's that's he's a trick to everybody. If you if you struggle on book tours and you need that kind of help, find somebody that you can drive. Get them to drive. You read the story to them, and then they can keep you right when you're doing all these yeah. these events. Because honestly, I I don't think I could have gone through six days of touring without 
him prompting me. I was just, because I was also writing on those six days. I was writing the next yes, one. Of series. Yes. <laughs> because that's, that's something Fantastic. else that people don't realize is that you don't get to just write at home a lot of the time. If you're on media tours and all this other stuff, you, you take your computer with you or you take your notepads with you or you take your whatever with you. And you are, you're constantly mapping or you're writing the next one because, because you're talking about that when you're getting all those voices for the next part. And I think that's something I like to stress on this show is because it's super important for everybody to know that, that writers, we might look like we're not doing anything, but I guarantee you we're doing like 50 things at one time. Would you agree with that statement? Yes, definitely. I think you're, and you're absolutely right to say that, you know, a, a writer needs a lot of thinking time yeah. as well. So I, you hear, I hear this all the time, you know, loved ones, family members, friends might think you're staring into space yeah. um, sometimes, just gazing into the distance. But actually, that's that's the breathing space where the story comes alive. And, and I've been caught out once or twice in the past where I've thought I've got, I know how many days I've got before my deadline. Yeah. And I know how many words I can write in a day. Yeah, and then I try and apply maths to it. Um, oh, yeah, I and, struggle um, with that. <laughs> uh, danger with that. Yes, danger with that. Well, I just read a brilliant line in Mick Heron's new book where he says maths is a bunch of bloody bastards, and I thought I yes. agree with that. <laughs> I of, agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you try, but what I've forgotten to add in, of course, the, the vital bit of maths I've forgotten was the was the breathing space, was the thinking time. And that is, you can't just write, especially when you've not plotted, which is yeah. the way I write. Um, you need to take a step back and, and, and let it settle and let the voices of the characters tell you, you know, what, what's, what's, what's going on with them. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that's the point at which we probably look maddest to the yes. outside world. A bit where we're off. They they expect to see us with a notebook or with our fingers on a keyboard, um, but they don't expect to see us gazing into the distance, apparently doing nothing or, or staring um, at someone and not realizing that you're staring at somebody. Yes, <laughs> it's just something yes. I do. Muttering to yourself, muttering to yourself in the car. That's my classic one. Yeah, I constantly get my son will say what, and I'll say no, it's fine, just just muttering. Yeah. I do it with Ian, like if we're driving and I'm stuck on a, because I had this thing where I had to rewrite a dance sequence for Amber's upcoming series and I was stuck. Like I was full on hit the wall stuck and I just started muttering and he he cannot stand it if I mutter. So I started talking to him about the dance sequence and about why I was stuck. And by the time we got to Tim Hortons, which unfortunately is my, my addiction, um, I'd figured out the problem. And then I was like, ah, I've got it. It does really help. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Make yeah. it I find you don't, And you don't always need an Ian in the car either no. for that. For, um, if you're in the car on your own, you put your voice memo on, on your phone. Yeah. You can mutter to yourself um, and ask yourself questions. I find that's really useful. Ask questions yeah. of the plot and questions of the characters. Um, and then by the time you've talked it through, as you say, Yep. suddenly you'll have that light bulb moment um, and you'll know you will still look like a mad person, yep. but you will have the answer to the plot. So it will have been worth it. The w- One of the worst things that I do, and uh, Ian's family catches me doing this all the time, is see if you're having conversations with people and the conversation's kind of not interesting you, then my mm. brain starts to replace it with conversations that's going on in my book or things that I'm writing. And then I sort of, 
drift out of the conversation <laughs> and then somebody will catch me and be like so what's your opinion crystal and i'll be like yes no yes <laughs> or whatever i can think of in that two second span of how the hell do i get out of the fact that i've just zoned out of their conversation because harold is doing something in my head that's or or i suddenly burst out laughing for no reason yeah that that's another in a way, way their fault for not being a better conversationalist i think yeah if their conversation would be more interesting yeah although maybe it's just our own writing is more interesting to us than the average conversation i think that's the problem isn't it it is that we are when we're, when yeah. we're in the heat of a book um that's more exciting than, than real life and that's another reason why we're writers is because our our real lives don't tend to be as challenging exactly um, yeah in different ways in different, in different ways, ways exactly do you do you ever get a character that you just no matter how much you write their story they don't leave you alone like there's always that one character that always comes back to you at some point and just harasses you yes Yes, definitely. Um, and when I was writing a series, I was really grateful for that um, yeah. because I needed them to stick around. If they'd shut up halfway through the series, it would have been um, annoying, yeah, to say the least. Nightmare, yes. but, um, and, and I do like a book. I must admit, I tend to write. Um, they, they, there's a the rule of thumb, isn't there, to, to end a book when the reader can guess what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, you you get out at that point. That's you know you don't need to spell it all out. You don't need to have yeah. a traditional you know black and white ending. And I think because life doesn't have those, no. I always feel a little, it's a little bit odd when it goes. And then everything was fine. The end. You know. Um, yeah, so I kind of roll my I'm eyes not, whenever I see that, and I know I shouldn't, yeah, but I do, and then I'm that. like, oh, no. yeah. But I, what I love is the, is the ones where you are still thinking about the characters after you've closed the book. Yeah. So I will always aim for an ending where. Um, it's not it's not ambiguous because it's a, a, a fine line between ambiguity yeah. and sort of a predictable certainty. I, I think there needs to be a nice poised sweet spot where the yeah. reader can can imagine what's going to happen next. Um, it, and sometimes I deliberately write an ending where you can imagine two a road diverging and 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 the yeah. reader can decide for themselves which of the routes the the characters took. And yes, all the clues should be there, um, yeah. but not to the extent that they can emphatically say, I know for certain this yeah. is what was going to happen next. That little bit of wriggle room for the for the readers, I find, is what keeps a, the readers really fascinated with the characters because they feel that they, they, they feel a sense of ownership of the character. I think I'm sure you'll have had that experience. Yes, I did. When you've yeah. been reading. You'll get that thing where you'll suddenly go, I know this character so well. I know what they would do if they were confronted with this situation. I know what they're going to do next. You don't need to tell me, writer. I now own this character. Yeah. Um, and it's a strange feeling for a writer. You feel at once proud that you've created such a great character, but you also feel slightly jealous because you're like, no, that was my character. Yeah, you're kind I, of almost I, like, wait, though, but you don't really know them because they live in my head almost. Yeah. I actually yeah, had an experience... I had an experience recently where I read the series and I loved the series, but I got to the last book and she abandoned the ending. And I was heartbroken. There's, I think In that's what way did also, she do it? She just, she wrote it as, you know, you think I literally checked to make sure it was the last page. <laughs> Cause it was like yes. just the end of a paragraph. It didn't, you kind of expected a little bit more. So I turned over the page thinking, She's gonna, she's gonna give me the ending. Yes. There's nothing there. And it wasn't there. And I'm like, and it felt like she just 
put the pen down and said, I'm done. She didn't even write the words, the end. It was just, that's it. And I was like, I had loved that series up to that moment. So to have that as the ending just killed the whole thing for me. Killed the whole world yeah, for so me. No. And that's, yeah, that's, that's my fear. Like I think we all have fears as writers, but my terror fear, and this is why I hate ending series, is, is the idea that I don't, like they feel like I abandon it at the end rather than giving them that ending that they're so longing for. So that that's hmm. that's the fear I carry with me. Do you do you ever get that sense where you're like, oh, I really hope they don't think I've just abandoned this entire thing, you know? Yeah, I do know what you mean. I think it's um, and obviously, I imagine the writer thought in that instance yeah. that they had, you know, that they were leaving the reader in the ultimate position of authority, being able to almost like know, having all the pieces of the puzzle to know what, what might happen next. Yeah. So probably a conscious decision to avoid patronising the reader that didn't quite pay off. And yeah. you're right, I'm sure that writer would be horrified to know that that was the reaction. It would not have been an intentional one. Yeah. But I, for me, it's the... I looked up, I, th- yeah, I thought I it did. was me. So I looked up the the, the reviews because I don't normally do that. And I looked up the reviews, 90, I think it was over 90% of the readers felt the same way I did. Like she had just oh, set, the pen yes. down, like set the pen down and walked away. And I thought, yes, yeah, that's like, that's no, gotta that's, be your um, worst that, nightmare. That has to be. It's a pretty bad one, isn't it? I think, I think certainly for me, it's um, people not understanding my characters. Mm-hmm. So if I, um, I don't get it very often, but every so often, once in a blue moon, I'll get none of the characters were likable in this story. I get that. And I will yep. think just because they're not, you know, good people, 100% good, goody, goody people, yep. does that really mean that they're not likable? Or I suppose it's not likable so much. It's um, uh, relatable. Rel- yep. I always, you know, I put a lot of effort into making sure my characters are sort of flawed and relatable and, and human. And the monsters have a bit of humanity in them and the, yeah. the, the the good people have a bit of monstrosity in them because that's true to people and life, I feel. Exactly, um, yeah. So it always disappoints me a bit if I feel I can take any amount of criticism of my writing and my plotting even, um, but if people criticise characters that I feel very fond of yeah. because I worked very hard and I, I, I have empathy with them, um, that's very hard, you know? That's um, one and of so my hardest, that, yeah, too. I'm the same yeah. way. Because yeah. for, for, um, for my experience, like when I put Marie's story together, I didn't want her to be this innocent victim. I wanted her to be already pre-flawed before her sister releases her diaries to the entire world. So you kind of, you've got two sisters that are really, really flawed and really, really, really screwed up. And the thing that everyone came back to me was, oh, these characters, she's not relatable. You can't have her as a heroine because she's not relatable. And that to me was like the gut wrench because I'm like, she's not supposed to be a hundred percent relatable. She's supposed to be like us. She's supposed to be a normal human being. And yeah, so I, I completely understand your position on that because it, that mm. was the worst review that I had in my opinion was just people thinking that they were not relatable at all. Yeah. I think that's, that. I think that we all feel, you know, fondness for our characters and, and in crime novels you know it, it often there are 
we're writing about monsters, you know, to yeah. one extent or another, but we're writing about human monsters, most of us. I mean, very, very often, I mean, it's very, quite rare that you'll find a serial killer book where the, there is an utterly irredeemable yes. character. I mean, even Hannibal Lecter was redeemed by having worse serial killers um, than him yeah. around so that we could all feel, you know, a bit of, a bit of light relief when Hannibal's on, on the page. Um, but um, I think it's, you know, I do think you're right. I, I, the human condition is an, is a strange, complicated, odd, changeable, shiftable thing. And to try and pin it down and to have uh, good guys and bad guys and uh, cops and robbers, it feels a little bit basic to me. Yeah. And so I'm, I don't, I don't enjoy that kind of book myself. Luckily, luckily, very few of those kinds of books are published in, in, in any case because publishers yeah. and readers like characters with all their complexity i mean it's quite unusual nowadays i think to get a book where there is the mustache twirling villain <laughs> and the the innocent you know yeah. uh true too good to be true um character in crime fiction if a character is too good to be true you can almost guarantee that they 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 aren't good there's yeah. going to be something going on there that it's almost like a red flag isn't it it is it um, definitely because yeah. when i did my i'm actually going to be releasing my crime first ever crime novel next year and i'm terrified congratulations <laughs> i am petrified um i actually went and i got one of the detectives from the first 48 hours and i peeled his brain back because I wanted it to feel I didn't want any crime reader to pick it up and be like oh well this is not how it's done you know I didn't want any of those mm -hmm. mistakes and I didn't want any of those sort of um worries and of course I took it's very difficult to take inspiration from true crime that's going on and place that in a fictional world because you almost feel like you're doing a disfaction you know a, a disservice to the people who have actually died so yes for for me doing it, I just got this idea one night of, well, what would it be like if nearly an entire family's wiped out? Just nearly an entire family in the middle of Shetland, where it's rural, where there's very little, you know, anyone would see anything. And I started writing it and I shared a little bit of it with my dad at the time because my dad likes crime. And he looked at me funny. He He got to like chapter 10 and he stopped and he looked at me and he went, I can't believe you wrote this. Like just that instant moment of he's looking at me. He's like, I can't believe you wrote this. And I said, why? And he went, you're very graphic. Mm. And then I was like, Ooh, okay. Maybe not having beta readers as family members is a good idea. <laughs> you know, cause like yeah. I didn't, I didn't know anyone that read crime. So he was like it. And I, I suddenly realized, Ooh, yes. Dad looks at me funny now. <laughs> yes. Yes, it can change the way people look at you. It's true. And yeah. I think also with family members, they remember you when you were tiny. Yes. You know, and they remember your funny little quirks. They will tell strangers those quirks forever. Yeah. You know, we all do that. You know, I do, I do that as a, as a mother myself. But I think um, it's, it is, it is a bit of a shock to the system when people discover you have an interior life. And we all have interior lives, yeah. but only writers write about them yes. um, and, and reveal them thus to the world. Um, and so I think you have to pick who your early readers are going to be. It's a tricky one. Yeah, I wish I'd known that, that prior to giving it to my dad because my, you know, my dad was like, oh, I'm going to share this with everybody. And then he got to chapter 10 and he's like, no, I'm not sharing this with anybody. No. <laughs> and I'm like... He's okay if I'm writing romance, like, because that's safe. He doesn't like my adult yeah. romance. He likes this sort of sweet, innocent stuff. 
And yes. I said to dad, I'm like, but I, I'm, I'm not that kind of person. Like, I like to write everything. I like to write YA or I might go and do some crime or do some horror, whatever takes my fancy. Uh, so yeah, my dad's kind of getting this idea that there's this, this very dark side to his, his little girl that he didn't know existed, which I think is hilarious, but he doesn't see it that way. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so what's been your ultimate moment as an author what's been like the best moment you've ever experienced so far um so obviously each time i get an idea for a story and get into the writing of it that's still for me i'm glad to say that my favorite bit of the whole process because it's the only bit over which you have any control at the end of the day isn't it yeah you can't control you know ultimately the final shape of the book you can't control sales ultimately really no. you can't control what the cover's going to look like you might be involved in it slightly but so everything that happens after you have written the best book that you can write is outside of your control so i've learned a bit like you with your not looking at reviews as a kindness to yourself yeah i've learned to try and um claw back my the focus of my pleasure and my attention to what i can actually control which is writing the best most compelling book that i can write Having said that, winning the Thixton's Crime Novel of the Year for my debut novel yeah. um, in 2015 was a pretty amazing moment because I yes. was up against all my writing heroes. I never thought for a second that I stood a chance. It was strangely intimidating being at Harrogate. Um, I was just concerned about climbing up on the stage without tripping falling flat on my face in as order to be do. yep yeah as one of the shortlisted authors and the other ones were you know Ian Rankin and um uh, uh Peter May yeah. and Ellie Griffiths and you know and so just not making a fool of myself was my main concern and after I'd done that bit of it then I got to sit back down and I thought thank goodness that's over now I can just sit and watch I, I was so convinced Peter May was going to win it that year yeah um and then when they read out my name, it was very, it was a very strange, surreal experience. Yeah. At the time, it was just terrifying. And that all the photos of me show me looking completely like a rabbit in the headlights, completely scared yep. out of my mind. It was very surreal. Um, but it, it was a fantastic moment, you know, and the, and the, the warmth in the room, you know, the, the other shortlisted authors all shaking me by the hand and hugging me, you know, and it was such a, 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 a real, a feeling of community and a feeling of being right there amongst my people, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, and, yeah. um, I do think that's one of the nicest things actually about being a crime writer in particular, but just being a writer generally is that we, I don't know about you, but certainly when I was at school, I was not one of the popular um, uh, nope, kids. I, I didn't have a gang. Yeah, I was somebody that was off to one side the whole time, made to feel slightly odd and unusual, didn't realise for years and years and years that I was autistic and so had no framework for any of that. And then yeah. when you become a writer and you find your tribe, um, all the things that you liked when you were a teenager, they all liked them too. When no lo you're no longer the weird one. You're yeah. sort of like you're the part of the gang. Um, and that was – I trained myself into thinking I don't need – that support network you know it's fine I'm over here on my own doing my own thing um but it has been nice to discover that some of my you know some people that I would now call my dearest friends are fellow writers who have seen me through the good times and the bad times and yep. um um and that's been an unexpected bonus of being a writer I, for me it was always just wouldn't it be great if my stories were in the hands of readers wouldn't it be great if i could have a published book and hold it in my hands i never for a minute thought wouldn't it be wouldn't this be a great way of making friends that was never no on the it, it never I crosses just, your mind no 
no, no. And so I consider that to be the the greatest sort of blessing and um, uh, a sort of side order of, of joy that has come unexpectedly from this whole business. Um, but at the end of the day, I still like just sitting on my own yeah. with ma- making up good ga- good guys, bad guys, everybody in between, yep. um, setting all the story in motion, trying to trick a reader, um, coming up with twists that are surprising yet inevitable. I mean, you know, that great ending like where you go, that, of course. that I've learned um, – and it sounds a bit odd, but I haven't found my tribe yet because I don't really fit into romance and I don't fit into wrestling really because I'm not a wrestler and I'm not a famous wrestling mm. writer and I don't work on a wrestling company or in TV or anything. So like, I'm still trying to find where I fit, but saying that I've had, I've had wrestlers who reached the I got episodes three years ago and they literally just the texts and the messages and the love that just suddenly showed up in my phone going oh my god are you okay um we saw you know you posted something you were in the hospital and you know then you went dark for for like a week what's what's going on with you just that moment of feeling like I wasn't alone and that was something I'd grown up feeling like after I hit my teens I was in high school. I didn't have my my friends I grew up in the hospital with. So it was almost like an isolation of I was trying desperately hard to fit in, but I couldn't figure out how to fit in. And it wasn't until much Mm. later that I realized my dyslexia was affecting how I fit in with everyone. And I was like, oh, this is why. Like, it's not because I'm skinny and I'm not, not because I'm not good at sports. No, no, it's because... I have, you know, I used to write poetry and I used to write all the time in class, not notes like I should have been writing, but ideas and stuff. And uh, it wasn't until I started publishing that I started to kind of gain a little bit of friends here and there, but I'm still waiting to find that kind of that one area where I'm like, yeah, this is my tribe. This is my group. Um, I just feel very kind of. Yeah. You probably you might you might well find that it's the crime fiction community because it's certainly it's you know that was one of the unexpected pleasures for me yeah. of choosing crime because um, I'd had nice friendships with writers before yeah. um, not crime writers but um, there is something special about a whole community of people that support one another and you know and lift people up yes. you know lift up the newcomers and. Um, um, you know, because we've all been, and you at one point we were all the newbie. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a great feeling of, and here's the new newbie, and isn't it exciting? And we're all great readers as well. I think that's the other thing. We, yeah. So we're always really keen to read the new proofs that are just coming out to see the exciting new voices that are coming into the into the genre. Yeah. Um, and um, so, yes, yeah, so fingers crossed that um, you'll, you'll feel I'm part sure of that I'm sure that you're, you're going to meet Seamus and think, this this is a very quirky guy. I, I mean, that's the only thing I can really say. Quirky's good. Um, you know, because I, I kind of took the idea from sort of my being up in Shetland, but as living there almost kind of like an outsider. Because even though I've got Shetland blood in me, I'm married to somebody that isn't from the island. So it's almost like you get pushed into that kind of outsider bubble. So I didn't, yes. I didn't realize that that was going to create Seamus the way that that Seamus was created um so yeah I I'll I'll send you coffee when it comes out but I am terrified really? it's yes, gonna be it's awful cool. <laughs> well well if it's being published it's unlikely to be um because that's what publishers exist to make sure that the good stuff 
gets put out. Yes, so. but that doesn't That's mean a... that I'm not going to sit there and like chew my nails for the oh, first yeah. week. Oh, <laughs> we can't. Yeah. The worst thing you can do as a writer, I think, is to is to get complacent. Yes. And to sit there thinking, well, obviously I've written a fantastic book. Everyone's going to realize it's fantastic. And I've never um, had you know, that feeling were... yet. I no, every no, time when a new I, one comes out, I'm a total yeah. disaster for two weeks. Yeah, I think that's absolutely natural. And I, I, I have heard of very well-established writers saying that, especially if they teach as well, yeah. that the the students that they that they know are the are the, the greatest students, the ones who are constantly racked by self doubt. Yeah. You know, imposter syndrome, all the rest of those things are part of being a, a self-critical and self-aware writer, I think. I, I hope I never get to the point where I think, obviously, that was a fantastic book and you're an idiot if you didn't think so. Because yeah. you know, I, that, I definitely not- have the imposter syndrome thing. Like, I, I, as I said, I was working with a screen uh, doctor, script doctor. That's what I was looking for. And I remember texting them saying, I've got imposter syndrome. I think I've completely screwed up. <laughs> and they were mm-hmm. like, no, you've not. And, and you know, script writers are not as fancy with their words as, as we are. So I got, no, you're not. Shut up. <laughs> and that was it. Like, just very blunt, very to the point. Um, but to them, like being a script doctor, you know, they're there to fix your script to get it to what it needs to be or the best version it needs to be. So there is almost that it's kind of like going through the editing process where you feel that nervousness and then you feel, Oh, confidence levels just disappeared. And then you come out the other side and you're like, Holy crap. Did I really write this? Like now that we've gone through all the pain and childbirthing and the laboring and the, you know, crying in the middle of the night that you think, you know, you're totally absolutely rubbish now it's out there and you're like oh okay i can survive this you know um so i'm going through that two times over a month at the moment because <laughs> i've got the I know. Script I don't process know how and then that. i have the novel editing process so yes yeah, so husband thinks i'm a basket yeah. case at the moment yeah oh well as long as he keeps remembering your character's names to prompt you at events yes yes he, he bless him he drove me yes. to to falkirk and he said I'm not coming in this time, <laughs> but gave me a list of like no. <laughs> prompts that he knew that I would forget uh, when it came to, to, cause yes. they were recording me too. And it was the first time I've had a, a author event recorded. And I'm like, Ooh, yes. this is nerve wracking. So yeah. And I, I also realized I had to go get my hair dyed cause my whole head was gray. Cause I hadn't dyed it in like right. a year. Right. And I was like, can't really show up being 34 years old, but looking like I'm 46. So there was also that element of, oh, crap, I need to go to the hairdressers. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you got through it. Yeah. So well done. But I, I think we all Cute. have that kind of feeling of that horror moment where we're like, okay, we've got to go out and do this kind of author thing. Oh, crap, we need to look the part. Because there is now an expectation of creating memories with our jobs now. It's not as simple as turning up in your sort of your t shirt and your jeans to sign a bunch of books. You actually have to look I always say you have to look presentable to people. You have to kind of fit mm. this superstar image that they assume that you are before you ever show up. Do you get that feeling when you're doing that kind of stuff? Um I think so. Slightly less in the crime fiction community because some of the biggest names in the crime fiction community don't 
avoid that deliberately. Yeah. So when you've got your people at the the, the pinnacle of their careers dressing quite casually, yeah. um, and being really cool and getting away with it, then it I think that's helpful. There's always somebody there that will be very smartly dressed and very slick. Yeah. Um, but I think overall the crime the expectation of crime writers is that uh, we are a very yeah, eclectic mixed bunch. Some of us look a bit dodgy, yes, we which all I do. think <laughs> is quite like. Yeah. And some of us look too good to be true, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, um, I, by design. Uh, uh, of course. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think there is a lot more flex. Certainly, certainly I've never felt any great pressure to, um, uh, to, to dress up. Yeah. Um, but it, that might be like plotting. I might just be breaking the rule and not aware of it. Um, I, I think there is kind of when when we start looking at genres and experience of genres from an author perspective, like romance, there's a certain you get a certain group of people that come yes. and they are always with nice little dresses on or nice little outfits and their hair's done. So it's almost like we have to kind of match that sort of appearance for them where all I really want to yes. do is pull on my exceedingly fleecy jumper and come in with my very kind of baggy jeans that are torn in places and trainers and just be like, yeah, I'm here. But I know that that's <laughs> not what's going to endear me to that group. I, I look forward no. to the day when I get into crime and I can be like turning up with my wrestling t-shirts on, my jeans and my, my trainers and just be like, <sighs> easy day yeah. <laughs> rather this than everything the, else yeah this might be the clearest sign yeah i think this is the clearest sign so far that you're meant to be a crime writer <laughs> i think if you're if you're looking forward to wearing a wrestling t-shirt and baggy jeans that's that, you that's know, been my that whole does sound right. my entire life yeah yeah and it, it's so funny because like all the crime like all the uh there's always crime in all my romance stories and a friend of mine just pointed this out to me. I think it was two days ago. And she went, Crystal, do you, do you realize you've got a darkness in all your romance novels? And I went, mm. no. <laughs> <laughs> kind of that awkward moment of, no, do I? And she's <laughs> like, yeah. Because one of the ones that, that's coming out soon is called Waking Up His Wife. And this girl gets blackout drunk and ends up married. And my friend is like, you do realize that it kind of crumbs across as if she's been spiked. And I went, mm. no, totally didn't dawn on me till she sat me down and pointed it out. And I was like, oh, so there, are, apparently I have a thread of crime through everything I write anyway. So, yeah. okay. Well, it's not unheard of for um, romance writers to um, turn to crime when their editors point out that they keep having dead bodies turning up in their romance stories. Yeah. I, I've known at least two really well-known crime writers that had that situation. Yes. And it was suggested to them that maybe if they enjoy killing people that much, yeah. what they should be really writing about is, is crime. Then you can still have a bit of romance in a crime novel. Yeah, you you know, there's no reason one, yeah. you can't have that. Yeah. Um, and in some of the greatest series, you know, you do have that um, uh on off will they won't they you know um uh, jane casey's Maeve kerrigan series is fantastic for that um yeah. over a long-running series you know this this these ideas of who she might get together with um and so you can play that long game um yeah um but i don't think that you are on a bound to have a happy ending for example which i hate you yeah. know to follow any of the formula that you were saying yeah you know you feel gets in the way uh, or makes it predictable a bit maybe in, in romance yeah and it, it's kind of weird because every like I look at Marzi Taylor and I think 
that woman is so poetic with her descriptions. It's very similar to how I write. I like to bring up the visuals. I love to bring up the graphic kind of, you know, so that you're having that instant gut reaction to something. Mm. And particularly, I didn't notice it till I did a grief story. And essentially, you know, this guy rolls over in the middle of the night and finds his wife's past. And then he sort of sent into this tailspin of, well, maybe if I'd put the fire on before I went to bed, maybe she wouldn't have passed. Like, you know, that whole stages of grief. And my editor goes, hmm. this isn't a grief novel, Crystal. You've written what could have been a great crime novel if you'd actually seen it as a crime novel rather than a, a story of a man yeah. overcoming the loss of his wife. And I went, ah, okay. So I'll be interested to see how everyone reacts hmm. to... um to the McLeod's investigations, which is the title that we've gone for. Um, right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous because I've done that one, but I've also done a an espionage thriller. Oh, right. I thought it's it was exciting. horror, so I'm still having this argument with the editor. <laughs> <laughs> I think we do that, though, like because when we're writing, do you not feel like, even in crime, you must have that kind of moment where you're writing it and you think it fits into one bracket and then somebody turns around and says, well, technically it also fits in here. Do you ever get that? Mm. It can happen because there's quite there's a lot of – crime fiction is a very broad church, yeah. so you'll get everything from some cosy mystery at one end or, the you know, taking it to its, its extreme um, novels um, where cats are the detectives, which yes. is quite popular in America, not so much over here. Um, and then you've got sort of, you know, the, the very grisly tableau serial killing maybe at the other end of the scale. Yeah. And in, in between there you've got noir, you've got domestic noir, you've got psychological thriller, yeah. you've got gothic which is a whole new favourite subgenre. Um, so, yes, um, and I think, again, my rule of thumb tends to be that's the job from the publisher team to come up yeah. to decide where they're going to. Obviously, they should do it in consultation with you. They yeah. should say, I mean, what my editor did was sit me down and say, so what is it that you are writing about, really? What are the recurrent themes in your writing? What are you trying to write about? What do you want to write about? Yeah. And from that, we extrapolated the right way, the right subgenre that, that fitted what I was doing. I think the, the worst thing for a writer would be if an editor or a publisher made a random decision that you were writing noir yeah. Um, when in fact you weren't, um, and they were t telling you that you know that that's what how they were going to market it because that yeah I don't, I don't think many publishers would do that. I think it would be I, I've only a tricky one to pull once, up. and and I I caught it really early because they classed something as romance and it wasn't. It was contemporary fiction, and I I caught it and I was like, this doesn't fit the troops of romance, and it was just a simple hmm. mistake because they they had focused in on the love triangles and they couldn't see right. by that. And then I had to explain sort of like the bigger elements that they had missed because they were just expecting it to be a romance. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I mean, because I had, this is my darker kind of, I, I always say my therapeutic sense, but this is me diving into that now. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering if I, I'll email you sometime off screen, but, I, I wonder if I am walking a very sort of tightrope line of what the story that I'm telling and what they're actually going to be able to market it as because there's what I'm writing hasn't really been done before. And I think um, that's that's where this kind of debate is kind of coming in because it's not following the set rules almost. Mm. 
I think the great, I think certainly in terms of flexibility and, and yeah. reader expectations, I think that crime has a really wide remit. Yeah. So um, you can have, and there are, you know, including sort of cross genre, you know, so you'll have supernatural thrillers. Yes. You can have ghost detective stories. I you read can have, one recently uh, that you know, I didn't know. Not, yeah. I, I picked it up thinking it was crime yeah. and it wasn't. And I was like, the hell is this? <laughs> so yeah, I yeah. know that feeling. And I actually think reading and readers, because they're reading so many, crime readers are reading so many books um, a week generally, yeah. which is why there's such a great appetite for more of these books to be published all the time. Um, they, you know, they, yes, some of them that might want to formulaic, the thing they feel comfortable with. Um, but actually, there's also a really voracious appetite for seeing what's new, what's coming up next. And yeah. so when you go to Harrogate, um, the one of the most popular panels that you will ever attend will be the Fresh Blood one which Val McDermott chairs, yeah. um, because people want to be right at the forefront of what's the new thing, what's the next thing that's going to come out, what's different about it. Yeah. And Val always picks things that are really different. Yeah. So you don't go into that room expecting to be told, here's the new, you know, um, whatever it might be. Here's the, here's the latest Agatha Christie style yeah. novel. You People are going into that room expecting to be told that there's something brand new and exciting that hasn't been done before. Yeah, and, um, and that's a really nice element of the crime community too. And that's what I, I feel is great about having these crime talks on this podcast because I've never been able to follow the proper formula. For whatever reason, my brain's like, Oh no, I don't like this. So I'm changing this and this and this and this, <laughs> which is great for me. Not so great when I hand it to my editor and she then reads it and goes, Oh, Crystal's just throwing the rules out the window this time round. Okay. Um, but I think, yes, there's rules, but I think sometimes it's good to just kind of say, I want to be different and I'm not trying to be different. I'm just following the story and I'm trying not to push it into a pigeonhole that doesn't work for it. Um, so yeah. I think... I think that's the, the story comes first. Yeah, the story I think, to. you know, that comes back to the same point. And the only thing we have control over, the story, and not, not you know, how it gets marketed, how it gets shaped, what words appear on the back jacket, how it's, yeah. you know, what, what goes into the press release. That's that's somebody else's business. Yes. Um, so all we can do is stay true to the story and the characters and tell the most compelling um, and original story that we can tell. Exactly. Well... How do you go about balancing your your normal life and your writing life? Like, what's your? Do you have a formula? Do you have a strict routine? How do you kind of go about balancing it? Um, well, I it tends to be a practical thing with me. So I am a morning person. So when I'm writing a first draft, I will get up early and do my writing at the beginning of the day. It gets to four o'clock, I'm useless. Yeah, um, that's my reading time. That's my catching up with my TV programs time. Um, So um, the morning is my writing time, but um, I will, um, I, when I'm writing a first draft, then I will prioritize the writing time. I get quite jealous and protective of my writing time when I'm working on a new draft. Um, When I'm between drafts and waiting for edits to come back or waiting for a new book to come out, then I tend to be, um, catching up with things to clear my desk so that when I'm then writing something new, so I'll get ahead on everything. But I do a bit of teaching as well. I teach um, um, an online uh, crime writing course, um, thriller writing course. I also am a Royal Literary Fund fellow. So I teach at university in term time a couple of days a week. Wow. Um, um, 
you know, so I have a, a range of different things that I do, yeah. but they all touch on writing to one extent or another, which is helpful. Um, when I was first starting out as a writer, I had um, a job that wasn't connected directly to writing. Um, and that was more difficult to manage that because then you really had to compartmentalize. Yeah, and it's very slow. Uh, whereas now everything I'm doing yeah. is kind of connected to writing somehow, even if it isn't all to do with crime writing. Yeah. Um, so, um so yes, I think it is. It's it's down to that trick, isn't it, of compartmentalizing. It's down. It's this is the point at which it, I'm I'm always very grateful um, for my autism being very. Uh, um, everything is smart tasked to within an inch of its life. Yes. Everything is you know um, organized in my mind. I know exactly what I've got to do by what dates. Um, I've never missed a deadline yet. Shouldn't say that. Touch yeah, wood. everybody touch wood um, on I this one. That's when it helps to control for it. Yeah, um, you yeah. just jinxed yourself. Then, yep. then when you're right. Yeah. Yeah, you try to stay loose when you're doing the writing because yeah. you don't want the writing to become over as, as formulaic and, and controlled. Um, but the things around it, it's a bit of the swan, isn't it? Yes. So that they, what people see of you on the surface is, is elegant and smooth and below the surface it's a mad Dash, fight. For, yes, yeah. Um, to keep moving forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's what I found. Like I found routine. I live by my calendar because my brain, as soon as I get to like, eight o'clock at night I can't write anymore because what comes out of me mm. is going to be rubbish so I know mm. that if I write early in the morning or in the middle of the night those are my two best times and so sometimes my right. husband will roll over in bed and it'll be five o'clock in the morning and I'll be through writing because something's woke me up that I just can't resist um but yeah I was like routine mm. I I drive him nuts because I plan everything to the last hour and then mm. nine out of 10, something will come and blow up my entire plan. And then I have to kind of like piece it back together. Otherwise I fall apart. But that's my trick. And that's why I say to like young writers that are coming up behind me. And I'm like, find what works for you. In a way, yes, it's great to take all these courses and stuff. But the only way to find yourself and find out what's good for you is to do it. Is to be writing. Is to get yourself in a position where you're writing every day whether it's for 10 minutes, whether it's for three hours, whatever it is, just try and find that time so that you're, you're letting your story out, but you're also getting into the habit of doing it. Would you agree that's good advice? Or? I think that's it. Definitely. No, I do think write, write a bit every day yeah. and, and read. And read, That's yeah. the other thing. I, I, there's a school of thought that says you shouldn't read whilst you're writing because it's a distraction and then yeah. you might pick up the cadence of the, of the, of the reading and might come across in your writing. It might influence it. Now that can happen sometimes, but the easy way to avoid that is to read outside of your own genre yeah. or to read nonfiction or to read poetry. Yeah. Um, you know, so that you're, but I do think, it's a bit like saying to a landscape artist, you've got to stay in a room and draw a landscape. You're not allowed to actually go and look at landscape yeah, which is um, whilst insane. you're doing yeah. it. So to tell a reader that they can't read when they're writing is madness, you know, because yeah. that's, we all began life as readers. Yeah, we did. We didn't, the first thing we did to do with books was not writing, it was reading. Yeah. Um, and so we need to have that. You know, luckily, you know, there are some fantastic books being published all the time. And so there's never going to be that well will never dry up. Yes. Even when we've got to hit our own walls, you know, in our writing, yeah. um, there will always be a great book that we can read or reread. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's the great thing about this podcast is that people get to meet and they talk and they a lot of people listen to it after they've been on the show and then they hear different recommendations of people they've never heard of before and then they go check them out and it 
it's actually grown this kind of community now where if you've been on this podcast it's almost like you're welcomed in oh you you know you survived with crystal and you've walked away with like five different recommendations that's really awesome you know so um yeah and it honestly it's been a pleasure having you on and i look forward to having you back when your next one comes out i will be doing a review for black thorn once it arrives i'm still waiting for it unfortunately (laughs) but as soon as it arrives i'll be doing a podcast review uh, to promote it even further for you and that's just what we do here it's it's about lifting each other up and giving you got everybody space to talk and come on no matter what genre you write no matter you know whether you're just beginning or whether you've been doing this for decades it's it's a safe space for all so thank you for coming on and Brilliant. for sharing your stories and sharing this little hour and a half with us and thank you Thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure and it's been really interesting. Yeah.